This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. NASA wants a spacecraft that'll chase down asteroids. The plan is for it to crisscross the solar system for almost two decades. This new mission will be made in Colorado, the spacecraft to be designed, built, and operated from here. Hal Levison of Southwest Research Institute in Boulder is principal investigator. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Hal, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor. You're calling this mission Lucy after the famous prehistoric human fossil. What will it do? Lucy is going to be a spacecraft that's going to travel out and visit a type of asteroid that we call Trojan asteroids. These objects lead or follow Jupiter in its orbit by 60 degrees and are believed to be the leftovers of giant planet formation. So these objects are going to teach us about how the outer outer planets formed and evolved. Uh, So we sort of view them as being the fossils of planet formation, which is why we named the mission Lucy. Do we have any idea what these look like? No. Uh, Matter of fact, of all the small asteroid-like bodies in the solar system, they're probably the only ones that aren't contributing much to our meteorite record. So we've never seen them on the ground. We can't pick up a piece of them. And we've never sent a spacecraft to them before. So they're really a mystery. Do we have a sense of how big they are? Oh, yeah. We know exactly how big the objects that we're going to visit are. Uh, The smallest one is about 15 miles across, and the largest one is about 100 miles across. And Lucy's not going to land on these asteroids. Uh, It'll just fly past them. Yeah, Lucy is a flyby mission, which is typical of NASA. Whenever we do a new exploration, first we do some flybys, then we do orbiters, and then we do the landers. So um, the interesting thing about this population of asteroids is they're very different from one another. Even from the ground, we can see they have different colors and different reflectivities and things like that. And that's telling us something about how the solar system formed. In order to really understand it, we need to go and study that diversity. That requires the spacecraft to be moving quickly. And as a result, we can only do flybys. These asteroids are in two separate groups or swarms, I think you call them, which means they're really far apart. So that means Lucy has to travel a pretty long distance, yeah, as you said. Yeah, Lucy's going to travel something between 5 and 6 billion miles over its uh, lifetime, going in and out through the solar system. It crosses the solar system twice. And we need that in order to cover that diversity. going to launch in 2021, and it's going to end in 2033. So it's a long time. By visiting the Trojan asteroids, you hope to learn about the formation of outer planets. That's everything past Mars, what many of us know as the gas giants. What can these asteroids teach us about the other planets? Well, first of all, we're going to learn about the chemical conditions that existed as the first solids started forming in the outer solar system. That's relevant to us because it's believed that the Earth formed dry, And a lot of the water and the stuff we're breathing and the organics came in from that outer solar system as the giant planet formed. So Lucy's going to tell us something about the chemical conditions that existed then. It's also going to tell us how the planets grew. One of the big advances that has been made in the last 20 years is the understanding that the planets that we see didn't form where we saw them, where we see them, rather. 
and to move around mm. uh, as they're forming. And uh, the Trojans are going to tell us how the giant planets actually moved around. Is there water on these asteroids? These asteroids are probably about half water. And that's true for almost everything outside the orbit of Mars, or at least uh, outside the asteroid belt, right? This is in a region beyond what we call the snow line, which is where things are cold enough that water actually condensed into ice. And so comets and the moons of these big planets and Uranus and Neptune are roughly about half water. Talk about one asteroid in this group that you find especially interesting. Well, my favorite target is uh, a binary system called the Patroclus Menonitius binary. These Trojans are all named after characters from the Trojan Wars, by the way. Mm. So the the names are complicated, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing them right. Okay. Mm. Uh, we've had lots of debates about how to pronounce them. So, But this particular binary uh, are our t- two largest objects. They're almost nearly the same size, roughly 100 miles across, and they're separated from each other by about 500 miles. And the reason why they're interesting is because we believe that they're leftovers from the primordial solar system. We think that most objects in the solar system formed as a binary like these – and got ripped apart by the planet formation process. And these are one of the few survivors. So that's going to be very cool. NASA awarded this project under a category of missions that it calls discovery. What is the goal of these kinds of missions? As the name suggests, these are really missions of discovery. And it's the only class of mission that NASA does in the planetary side of things where individual scientists can step up to the plate and say, we want to do this. And it could be anything, really. So this process started, for example, in 2014, where people put in uh, proposals. There were 28 proposals submitted. That was down-selected to five, which uh, were in competition. We were given some money by NASA to go off and prove that we can actually do what we said we were going to do. And a couple of weeks ago, they down-selected it to two, us and another mission called Psyche. And what will that be doing? That's going to go to another asteroid. This is actually a core of a planet that got exposed due to the collisional evolution of the solar system, leaving an iron-nickel core just floating around in space. And it's going to teach us how planets grew and differentiated. Your organization, Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, is also running the New Horizons mission to Pluto, which has revolutionized our understanding of that dwarf planet. How important was the success of that mission to you winning this one? I think it was very important. NASA wants to make sure when they give this pot of money, and we're talking about over the whole lifetime of the mission, something like $750 million. It's a lot of money. And they want to make sure it's going to be spent effectively. And to show that you have a history of being able to spend that money well is very important in their future selections. The spacecraft will be built by Lockheed Martin in Littleton. How many people in Colorado are part of this mission? Well, it's going to ebb and flow over the history of the mission. I've heard estimates over the whole thing. It'll be a couple thousand. Most of those are just on the project for a few weeks or a few months to build a little widget that gets bolted onto the spacecraft. But overall, it's going to be something like that. Does it help that many of you are in the same neighborhood? I think it helped us get selected, frankly. Uh, We've spent a lot of time driving back and forth from Boulder to Littleton and uh, see them almost every day during crisis modes, right? And so I think that's very powerful. 
the spacecraft won't even launch for four more years. So what do you do between now and then? Only four years? That's, <laughs> I mean, the, look, the spacecraft right now is in its infancy, right? It's almost, and I'm sure my pe- my friends at Lockheed Martin are going to cringe when they hear this, it's almost been Tinker Toy or maybe even Lego engineering. You take this bit and stick it there and you take this bit and stick it there. Now we have to make it all work. And a lot of that time is going to be just design and finalizing design and make sure it knows what it looks like. Then we have to cut the metal and put it all together. Four years sounds like a really short time to me. For someone like you who's leading this effort, how much of a weight is this on your shoulders while you're doing this? I'm still at the point where I don't know yet. It's sort of like having a child, right? Uh, And I'm still getting used to being a parent. It's all my responsibility. I'm responsible to NASA to make sure it all works. Um, I have a great team, so I'm confident it will. And I'm just getting used to the emotional idea that I am responsible for something like this. Well, how uh, congratulations and good luck to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Hal Levison of Southwest Research Institute in Boulder. He's principal investigator on NASA's new Lucy mission to the Trojan asteroids. Again, it'll launch in 2021. Coming up, the story of a former slave who carved out quite a life for herself in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The gold rush attracted lots of people to Colorado, most of them looking for fortune. Clara Brown came looking for her daughter. Brown was a newly freed slave and had lost track of her daughter, who'd been sold to another master. Clara Brown went on to become a highly respected landowner and philanthropist, but her search for Liza Jane consumed her. She is the subject of a new PBS documentary. Director Patricia McEnroy is here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It was unusual for slaves to get married and have their own children. She had four kids, though. One drowned when she was very young. I can't imagine how painful it must have been to have your own children sold to different masters and taken away from you. I mean, how did Clara Brown respond to that? I I can't imagine it either. And I think it's something that we have to think about, not just in terms of Clara Brown, but that happened to lots of people. You know, this happened to lots of slaves. And I'm hoping that people will be able to connect with Clara Brown and start to understand how history has happened. I think that any one of us can imagine it being an embittering experience. Her life does not reflect that. Her her life does not reflect being stuck in embitterment. That's what I really love about her. She suffered so much. She had so many difficulties, but she was always positive. She was kind to everyone she met. And goodness came back to her as a result. Which we'll talk about. Indeed, the documentary portrays her as incredibly nurturing. What were examples of that throughout her life? You know, you could kind of see early on that she must have been very nurturing to the family that she was with in Kentucky, because her owner at the time, George Brown, left her her freedom in his will. And so she was freed early. She was freed around 1856. And that's why she was able to make her way to Colorado by 1859. So slavery is still going on until 1865, and yet here she is in Colorado running her own small business. You think of people leaving possessions in wills or money in wills. In a will, she was left her freedom. Yeah, and that's an amazing thing. But what's also amazing is that his three daughters agreed with his wishes and helped make this happen. 
And they helped set her up with some work, paying work, that was happening in St. Louis, Missouri, which was another big challenge. If you left slavery, you really didn't have anywhere to go. And so that was the next big thing that you have to figure out. When she eventually came to Colorado, she served a pretty nurturing role to coal miners here. Some of the miners called her aunt. And you have a quote from a newspaper in 1872. The daily miner called her aunt Clara. Sounds endearing, but I think could also be construed as demeaning. What do you think they meant by this this Aunt Clara name? That was really unusual to my ears, being someone that grew up in the interior western United States, and I didn't really know what to make of it. I think it was really meant as a term of endearment for her. But uh, Dr. George June speaks to it in the film, and he says there's a couple different ways to take it. One way to take it might be that courtesy titles often weren't used for black people at the time. And so that's also important for us to know. I made a presentation to the board at the Black American West Museum, and they said, let's leave that part in the film as a conversation. Let's not be definitive about it, but let's leave it as a conversation. But that Mr. or Mrs. might not be afforded to blacks at that time. That, that, was, mm-hmm. that was one of the reasons that may have happened. So that's why we left it in as a conversation. And you mentioned a professor there who's at uh, the University of Northern Colorado in the Africana Studies Department. So uh, Clara Brown was a slave in Kentucky, freed in her 50s. It was later in life that freedom came to her. It was not easy for her to come west. You have this really adorable clip of a high school student describing that in the film. They had to cross this desert called the Starvation Desert. And Aunt Clara Brown, she was the one who provided the food and washed the clothes. She's very hardcore. The young person describes her as very hardcore and resourceful. I mean, despite being illiterate. What were some of the jobs she took on once she landed in Colorado? One of the things she did that was really smart on on her side was when she uh, found the wagon train that she wanted to go with, she worked her way across. And she knew there were a lot of bachelors on these wagon trains. So she said, hey, I'll do the laundry and the cooking for the bachelors. So she worked her way across that way. Well, the part of the deal was they would bring her laundry equipment. So she was able to start a small business with that laundry equipment. When she got here, she was also a really good cook and she would sort of make too much food accidentally on purpose. And when she knew that people were hungry, she'd say, hey, I made too much food and she'd share it with people. There were later examples then of her industriousness. Tell us about some of her later businesses. You know, she ends up investing in uh, real estate and mining and she's able to get in on real estate fairly early on because if someone came out here to mine and it didn't work out, they'd often just abandon the property. So she gets her first cabin for around $25. And uh, she amasses quite a fortune, actually. I think you say that she has a lot of money in her savings account such that she's able to buy more properties really across the state. She is. And, and some of those she'll get because uh, people will sign on. Uh, she'll loan them money, but then maybe they'll leave because it doesn't pan out for them. And so she'll, you know, she'll get their property in payment or something like that. So there were a variety of ways she acquired things. There was also a, a group of black miners that was in Central City, and they advised her. Um, and they also um, had investments with her. We're talking about Clara Brown, this remarkable woman who, after being freed as a slave, came to Colorado. We're going to talk about more about what brought her here a search for her daughter in just a bit. But that student we heard just a bit there uh, is one of several people you interviewed in this film. 
Um, why did you want that student's voice? You know, here in Colorado, you can learn about Colorado history when you're in grade school. And so you, you, that's a lot of history to learn in a short amount of time. And so uh, Carly Gunning, who's the student in the film, she was studying Colorado history. She cl- chose Clara Brown as the person she wanted to do a report on. So she read a book and did a report about her. And that's why I interviewed her. And it reflects what young people are learning about this historical figure in Colorado. So she desperately wanted to reconnect with her children. And uh, Clara Brown had heard her husband had passed away and two of her kids. But she kept up hope for Liza Jane, her youngest daughter. She would ask every wagon train of black people, a single black people that came into town if they knew of her daughter. And she kept on trying and kept on trying. And so finally, um, she was able to find a clue. So it is in about 1882 or three that this letter comes in from a friend who is a former Denverite who says to her, I think I know where your daughter is. There's such a needle in the haystack quality to that. What happened? (laughs) You know, it's kind of a miracle. But again, we sort of see the broader story of slavery and families trying to reconnect when names have changed, families have been split up, people have been moving around to different states. Um, And Clara Brown's not literate. And so she just tells everyone that she meets and all along the way for years and years and years. And, you know, the story is someone's in line at the post office in Iowa and starts talking to this lady and says, boy, this sounds really familiar. One of the telltale signs was that these girls had been identical twins and one of the twins had died. That would have been a pretty unusual story. So that was one of the keys that helped them figure out they were re- related. Right, to identify this. And she she had thought her daughter had moved west. That is in part why she came west. Yeah, and we don't know for sure why she thought that. You know, a lot of people were moving west, but Clara Brown had had the opportunity to go to California with this family from St. Louis, and instead she wanted to come to the interior west. So maybe she had heard some rumors that, that for some reason um, her daughter was in the interior west. When Clara Brown died, the mayor of Denver and a Colorado governor attended her funeral. And uh, there's this lovely resolution that the Colorado Pioneer Association wrote about her. Resolved that we sincerely mourn the loss of this noble woman whose many acts of benevolence made her presence like an angel's visit. And may heaven amply reward her in the unknown land beyond the range. She founded several churches, I understand, from your film. She helped fund the starting of several churches. And so she really banded together. And she wasn't picky about the particular religion. She just wanted to move that forward in this part of the country. And she really believed that. Um, She's a very spiritual person, a very religious person. When you studied that funeral, you saw who was there. What was your reaction? Well, for one thing, it was amazing that there was a story about it in the Denver newspaper. Um, Most people that died at the time would have had maybe a few sentences in the paper. They did a really big, long story about her funeral. And then the fact that so many prominent people showed up is really a reflection of how she really won people over at all levels of society. What do you hope people take away from Clara Brown's story? Certainly the larger story, as you've said, of slavery. But anything else? Yeah, I, I really hope it's educational, but I also hope it's inspiring. I mean, how cool is it to start over when you're in your 50s 
and to never give up hope and to keep that positive attitude. That's what I really hope people take away from it. I suppose the the critical question is the reunion of mother and daughter, if it happened, how it happened, what it was like. Again, the fact that this was documented in the newspapers of the time is amazing. And that's one of the reasons we've lost a lot of the stories during slavery. So many people weren't literate and Clara Brown was not literate. But the fact it was written up in the um, Council Bluffs, Iowa newspaper and the Denver newspaper helps us find that documentation. And what did those papers say? (laughs) They did a really, you know, it was like a big headline, mother and daughter are reunited and, um, the sad days of slavery, you know, she's she's still having this uh, happy reunion. And in her 80s, this is happening. So it was a storyline, I think, really, that captured the national attention. I'm not sure if it was national or regional, but the fact that it was published at all was kind of a miracle. It was exceptional. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for sharing this story so we can share it with others. That is Patricia McEnroy. She directed the new documentary, Clara, Angel of the Rockies, and you can watch it at cprnews.org. As we reported last year, there is a statue of Clara Brown in the new Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. That is music from the film. Still to come, lawyer turned stand-up comic Troy Walker. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. During college, Troy Walker moonlit as a stand-up comedian. Went to law school, which is pretty cool. But I always had a fear about it that I was going to like run into one of my classmates like 10 years from now at a courthouse or something. I'm like, dude, we went to school together. What are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I'm prosecuting this case, man. Some idiot stole a whole bunch of video games from a toy store. <laughs> he's like, what about you? And I'm like, you don't understand, man. Every year there's a new Madden and it always costs $60. <laughs> Walker was raised in Denver, moved to Los Angeles a couple of years ago. Comedy is now his bread and butter. He won the Comedy Works New Faces contest twice, and uh, he's back in Colorado this week to perform. Welcome home. Thank you. You studied law at the University of Denver, and uh, right after you graduated, you landed a job at a financial firm focused on detecting money laundering. Uh, But you kept doing stand-up. How on earth did you balance those things? Um, I mean, you know, I just, I had been doing stand-up since undergrad, so that was just kind of my normal, you know, it was like, you do what you do during the day, and then at night, you go to dive bars, and you go to comedy clubs, and that's what you do, you know? But it is burning the candle at both ends, isn't it? Because these are kind of opposite hours. They are definitely very opposite hours, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a night owl anyway, so... I'm not going to act like I had the discipline to go to bed when I should have gone to bed most (laughs) of the time. Uh, A lot of it was, you know, there were a lot of like trips to IHOP at three in the morning that I regretted before going to work or going back to going to school or whatever. But, you know, paid off in the end. So were were you a good student? Were you able to to manage both? Uh, College and law school, I was a good student. I was less Uh of a good student in high school here. But interesting. So. At the point you add in the comedy and the late hours, you become a good student. 
Well, no, the late hours happened in high school too. That was part of the issue. Was, I see. <laughs> was I was you know playing Mario Kart at all hours of the night. But um, no, you know, I just think uh, co- college uh, it, it fit me a little more. My hmm. sensibility. When did you decide to do comedy full time? Uh, well, it, it kind of happened on on its own you know i don't know that it was necessarily an active decision by me it was sort of a i i'd I'd gone out to los angeles for what they call pilot season uh which is when um most of the networks and uh cable networks and everything are casting their new their new show lineups and it's about seven to nine weeks in the spring it starts at the end of january and goes to like into March, basically. So were you hoping to land, uh, like, a sitcom? I mean, that would have been cool, uh-huh. but, you know, no, the, I don't think anybody actually thinks you're going to get anything. <laughs> Why? But, and yet you you're, still go out there. Yeah, well, the first, yeah, the first time, nobody thinks you're going to get it the first time. It's like, you know, it's one of those things where it's a, they're looking, like, years down the road. Like, mm-hmm. your your agents and stuff are looking years down the road for you to maybe pull something off. Um, of course, you would love to get you know something immediately and you kind of go out there with that in your head and like i bet you i get something right now i bet you i get something real quick and then you don't but uh i'd gone out there for that and the intent was to come back but then i was out there and uh i did the late late show and i booked a commercial and i started doing all these auditions and i was taking classes and i had all this stuff going. I had this sort of other life that I developed in about seven weeks in California. You kind of pieced it together. Yeah. So it was kind of like a thing where, you know, and then I started, once I had the TV credit, then I started going on the road a little bit and, uh, I realized I needed to stay in LA. Like I kind of needed to give that a shot. So did you have a law job during that whole period or had you just said, I need to take a break? Well, I had the finance job. So what happened was I uh, I went to a festival. I went to the Montreal Comedy Festival, the Just big, for Laughs. big one, yeah. It's the biggest one in the world, I believe. And I was a new face at that and I got agents and managers out of that and they say, come out for pilot season. And you go, okay, well, that's, you know, what is was that, like a week? And they go, no, it's seven to nine weeks and you go okay (laughs) so i went to hr at the financial firm and i was and i was like hey i I gotta go to la for seven to nine weeks and they go okay well what if you resign and we put you on a rehire list and i was like oh great so then i just you know i thought i was gonna have my job still so i went out i spent a bunch of money that i wished that i hadn't spent later (laughs) um (laughs) Because I thought I was coming back, basically. I, so my job was waiting for me. Um, and you never returned back, though. No. Yeah, that that uh, network television debut in 2015 was big. So that's the Late Late Show. Here's here's some of that. I've been reading a lot of classic novels lately, you know, like A Tale of Two Cities and Oliver Twist. And they're great. But I noticed that they have all these insults in them that people don't use anymore. But I think they're worse the insults people do use, you know? If somebody calls you like a jerk or an idiot, like, eh, whatever, forget the guy, right? But if anybody ever called me a ragamuffin, <laughs> we're both going to jail. Where do you get material from? Um, you know, it's weird. It, it kind of can come from anywhere. Uh, it can come from something happening to you. It can come from something that you see. Uh, and sometimes you'll just be sitting there and you'll just really think of a dumb idea. 
and build around it. You know, uh, it 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 literally. Can, can you come give me from, an example? Um. Yeah. So like, I had a joke about uh, that. I I sometimes still do, but I, I've had it for a while about um, fake gang signs. Uh, and I don't really know, I don't even remember where this idea came to me. I literally was like sitting at home and I had the idea of like, that it would be funny if you just threw up fake gang signs. And then I ended up writing this thing around that, you know? Like Um, hand signs. Yeah. Uh Like, yeah. Like instead of like actual gang signs, it's just like shadow puppets. (laughs) Um, it It was basically... The I like it, that basically just as like a <laughs> it was just it just was like Silliness. dumb yeah just dumb dumb ideas will just occur to you sometimes. Um, You're listening yeah. to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with comedian and Denver native Troy Walker. He's back in town to perform at Com- Comedy Works uh, locations downtown and uh, at Comedy Works South as well. You mentioned that. Early on, when you went to L.A., you booked a commercial, and it, yeah. it was for PetSmart. Uh-huh. Interestingly, directed by Christopher Guest, the king of mockumentaries like Waiting yeah. for Guffman and Best in Show. Yeah. And you appeared alongside actress Jane Lynch. I'm not a fan of infestation. And if even one flea or one tick gets on my William or my Monty, you're going to have to deal with me. How bad is your infestation? It's a nightmare. Well, PetSmart has the products to help treat your pet, home, and yard. I mean, if you asked me, did Christopher Guest direct a commercial and it was that it, I don't know that I'd be able to identify it. But I understand you turned that into stand-up material, that commercial. Yeah. Well, that, the thing about that is there's, that's, the, that's the clip they were running on, too. That's the little one. Uh-huh. But there's like a two-and-a-half-minute like, long version of that that's – if you saw it, you'd be like, oh, this is definitely Christopher Guest. Like you would I never – it was an entire campaign he was directing. Got it. Um, yeah. I mean I kind, of, I kind of was able to write a joke out of uh, something my brother told me about the commercial, which was – Which was what? Which was that he, there was someone he knew uh, – <laughs> in the, my brother lives in Arkansas. It was someone he knew – uh, a, this black lady he knew who t- told him that she saw the commercial and she liked it, but she didn't like how white she thought I was talking in the commercial, which was like the most absurd thing to me because I have two lines in the entire commercial. <laughs> so it's like notion- ridiculous. It was like, what do you, what does that even mean? Uh. You know? And it's such a dumb thing to say. And it, like, it was just. But interesting, that could have been a really painful comment to hear. And you made a joke out of it. Yeah, no, it just, I mean, it just made me mad. <laughs> it was just like, it was just a dumb thing to, like, it was just, you know, we're pushing flea and tick medicine. <laughs> like, who sees, who even thinks of that that way? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that was just, it was just such a ridiculous thing to say that I kind of, like, wrote this thing out of it. And I've been beating that joke to death. Yeah? <laughs> it's yeah. A lot of good mileage? Oh, people love it. Your first stab at stand-up was as an undergrad. You studied political science at Metro State. What do you remember about that first night? Because I would think of that as just terrifying. Uh, first night doing stand-up? Yep. Um, I remember being both terrified and really excited because uh, I'd wanted to do it a long, long time. And But I also chose... Uh, a relatively hostile place to to try it. Which was? 
Uh, it was the Squire Lounge on uh, East Colfax. Uh-huh. And back then, it wasn't like how it is now. Now it's, you know, this very sorry, sort of trendy, very nice uh, kind of bar. And at the time, it was the diviest of dives. I've never seen a dive bar as r- rough as the Squire. It was re- there was no door guy. And so, you know, it was East Colfax, so... You'd walk in and the audience was hipsters and like, you know, like drug. It was like all it was. It was a, a mix, mot- a motley crew. It was a very yeah. It was like you know the Maz Eisley Cantina, <laughs> you'd, and you'd walk in with but like drinking PBR, you know, and uh, and a rough crowd. Yeah, it was very. That was kind of the hook of that open mic was that it was the meanest mic in America. So the they weren't necessarily on your side. Uh, how did was, you How did you do? Uh, I did fine for first like first time. I mean, most of them ignored me. You know that that it would be crowded. It would be very crowded this place. So it would be you know a hundred plus people in, packed in this little dive bar, and most of them would just talk over you if you weren't good. Oh, gosh. Right. The meanest crowd isn't necessarily one that boos. It's one that doesn't even pay attention to you. Oh, yeah. They would just start. Yeah. They would just have a conversation. They would all just be having their own conversation. And then the host, my friend Craig Baumhauer, would then make fun of you after you got off stage if you did. But you you didn't bomb, it sounds like. No, I definitely bombed. Oh. I, I 110% bombed. Uh, but, yeah, you know, the people up front that, like, were paying attention. You know, I got a couple of chuckles. Enough um, that you went back on stage another day. Comedian and Denver native Troy Walker, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Comedy Works in downtown Denver tonight and tomorrow mm-hmm. night at Comedy Works South. Coming up, 75 years of a place called Red Rocks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Red Rocks Amphitheater is 75 years old, but long before the stage and seats were built, the spot was celebrated for its natural acoustics. The first known concert took place there on May 30, 1906, when Pietro Satriano and his brass band performed on a makeshift wooden platform. Since then, Red Rocks has hosted thousands of shows. G. Brown, director of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, wrote a history of the amphitheater. It's called Red Rocks The Concert Years. He joined us back in August. Welcome back to the program. Good to see you, Ryan. What can you tell us about that first concert? Pietro Satriano was known for performing at Lakeside. Uh, the amusement, amusement park. park. Yes, down here in Denver. And they managed to drag him up uh, the mountain. You got to remember <laughs> back then there was no C-470, no I-70, no Alameda Avenue, none of the uh, main arteries to get people up there. So maybe they did it by covered wagon. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, they, they got him up there. Basically, uh, in those early days, they were mostly acoustic tests just to see if it was worth uh, having entertainment up there. It was known to locals as Red Rocks, but it carried other names, Garden of the Angels, Garden of the Titans. That's back when it was privately held land. Uh, and then 
uh, Red Rocks Amphitheater christened, as you noted, 1941 on June 15th, and that's how we know it today. That was the transfer from private to public, I guess. Yes, the city uh, purchased the land uh, in the late 20s. It was dormant for a few years until uh, the CCC was brought in, the Civilian Conservation Corps. That was part of uh, FDR's New Deal, getting people to work. And it's amazing, Ryan, they had a truck but that might have been their only piece of motorized equipment. Red Rocks was built with dynamite and picks and shovels and wheelbarrows over the course of seven years. Wow. Uh, pretty astounding. And so the recovery from the Great Depression is what gave us Red Rocks. So indeed, in 1927, the city of Denver buys Red Rocks for $54,000. Such a deal. Or such a deal. Not necessarily back in the day. But um, uh, the amphitheater was, was really the vision of a man named George Cranmer. There's a park named for him. Maybe you've seen that name in Metro Denver, Cranmer. Who was he? Uh, George was uh, a successful businessman around town and was uh, friends with the political regimes at the time, got named to a position where he was able to execute things under the guise of parks and recreation. And he saw the vision for Red Rocks. He had traveled over to Italy and seen some of the old coliseums and such and mm. knew that Red Rocks could be its equivalent here in America and was uh, was very steadfast in his efforts to get it built. And it opens June 8, 1941, so 75 years ago. Who performed there in the early years? The earliest years were mostly symphony orchestras, New York Philharmonic, uh, for instance, a lot of opera singers, Lily Pons, Robert Merrill from the Met, uh, and things of that ilk. Uh, it was kind of a highbrow entertainment yeah. center. The first rock and roll concert at Red Rocks was supposed to be this dude. Hello, Mary Lou. Goodbye, heart. Sweet Mary Lou, I'm so in love with you. Yes, Ricky Nelson was scheduled to perform August 14, 1959, but it was rained out and moved to the Denver Coliseum. So what was the first rock show at Red Rocks? Well, it's fuzzy territory, Ryan, in terms of defining rock. Okay. We had the Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary. That, were they, not, were they part rock. of the great folk scare of the early 60s, or were they popular music as opposed to rock? Yeah. Uh, I would say that the Beatles' performance in 1964 uh, was the tipping point. Okay. Uh, and that show, uh, if I may proselytize for a moment, has gone down historically as the one show on the Beatles' uh, originally announced itineraries of their two American tours that did not sell out. Only 7,000 tickets sold out of the 9,000 capacity. At the time, it was ascribed to two things. One, the distance up to Red Rocks. If you were a kid in Cleveland, you could take the bus down to the auditorium down, downtown and right. see the show. But at Red Rocks, if your parents weren't taking you, you didn't have a shot. Also, Igor Stravinsky, the world's greatest living composer at the time, had just played at Red Rocks for $3, and the Beatles were charging $6.60. So these long hairs from England coming over and pillaging our local economy, uh, it, it was untoward. However, 
You look at any photos from that show and there are people spilling out over the rocks. There's 10,000 people there. It's oversold. Freeloaders. Well, what it was, Ryan, uh, is that every kid in every high school knew that you could sneak into Red Rocks without a ticket at the time. Concert <laughs> security as we know it now was non-existent. It was a mountain park exclusively. And as soon as the lights went down and the crowd roared and the cops looked to see what the commotion was about, about 3,000 people ran into the bathroom and then integrated themselves into the amphitheater. So this is August 1964 with the Beatles. Uh, just a few years ago, we interviewed someone who was there. That's Catherine Keller of Boulder. She was 12 years old that summer. We got there really late, which was probably about 5.30 or 6. And we got seats in the very back at Red Rocks. And that didn't make me happy. But nonetheless, it was my lot in life. And the Beatles didn't come on until 9.30. They played for about 27 minutes. And in fact, we couldn't really hear any of the words to their songs because the equipment they had wasn't that great. We were way in the back at Red Rocks, and the screaming was overwhelming. Got something to say that might cause you pain. Got that you talking to that boy again. I'm gonna let you down. What you heard there was actually recorded at the Hollywood Bowl a few nights before, but it gives you a sense of that deafening scream. How do you think the Beatles concert changed Red Rocks as a venue? Well, it just set the tone for the younger generation to utilize Red Rocks. Again, before then it was uh a little more highbrow, and then all of a sudden it was the the teenagers with disposable income coming up there. Uh, kind of a tough history for Red Rocks in the 60s. Riots at a Ray Charles concert in 1963, Aretha Franklin in 1968, um, infamously Jethro Tull in 1971. Yeah, what happened then? June 10th, 1971. It's really one of the most infamous crowd disturbances at Red Rocks. Um, it was a different time. Cops were pigs, music was free type of type of mindset among some people. And Tull had sold out a show. Uh, there were a few thousand people who were willing to wait outside and just hear the music, but a few rabble-rousers got them going, and the police drew a line uh, and used tear gas, dropping canisters from helicopters. Goodness. Uh, it was quite the scene. The wind shifted and blew the tear gas inside the amphitheater, where the crowd had no idea what was going on outside, but I've always given great credit to Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. Had he not performed, it would have been much more of a sordid tale in Red Rock's history. But he uh, choked his way through a set and uh, kept everyone entertained. Uh, however, it did result in the banning of rock shows, if you will, at Red Rocks for five years. Soft rock acts like Peter, Paul, and Mary, John Denver were allowed to perform. Uh, but it wasn't until America was booked in 1975, the city considered them a little too edgy, <laughs> uh, which is a debatable thing. Uh, so uh, Barry Fay, the concert promoter at the time, took the city to court and won, and that opened the floodgates. The Red Rock Summer of Stars started and evolved into what we know now. We're talking about the history of Red Rocks. G. Brown from the Colorado Music Hall of Fame has written Red Rocks, The Concert Years. And I'm glad you brought up Barry Fay, the late concert promoter. 
In uh, 1968, he began booking shows at Red Rocks, really helped put the venue on the map, I think. Yes. uh, He fell in love with Red Rocks as soon as he saw it. Uh, Some interesting exercises up there, uh, notably Jimi Hendrix performing on a bill with Vanilla Fudge and Soft Machine. Everyone assumes that was a legendary performance, and uh, by everyone's account who was actually in attendance, it was one of the worst concerts of all time in terms of the equipment showed up late, didn't function, Hendrix was frustrated, and didn't really deliver his A-game by any stretch. Faye was the promoter behind one of the most famous concerts at Red Rocks. I'm talking about U2's performance, June 5th, 1983, which was famously captured on video. Here is Barry Faye in 2008 talking about how the lousy weather conditions that night actually helped make the concert quite memorable. All the things that were wrong went to make it as great as it was. And I also, I should say, I had Neil Diamond in town the same night at McNichols. I was supposed to go down there later and say goodbye. I mean, say hello, goodbye, whatever you want to say, but I couldn't move. You were riveted. Riveted is the right word. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pacer, but I don't think I moved 10 feet. The whole, I just stood there, and it's such a cliche, overused word, magic. But it was. You knew you were witnessing something extraordinary. Was there a song that sticks out in your head? Well, Sunday, bloody Sunday, when he comes up with a flag and starts marching in place, and and you look up, and it flames, and and everybody is down front at this time with U2 signs and the banners. It was surreal. You were there that night covering the concert for the Denver Post. Yes, What do you remember? Just seeing a a young band who I had championed for a few years uh, turn everything that was a disadvantage to their advantage. It really was memorable. I chuckle when I hear Barry talk about that show because he was the one person who was vociferous in his desire to move the concert postpone it, cancel it, move it to another venue. Because the weather was not great. uh, It was foggy. Yeah, he was flying in from Los Angeles, and when he heard the show was going on, he had uh, one of his famous conniptions. But but, uh, the band had invested every nickel they had into doing this. They got on the radio, called every radio station in town, begging kids to come out. I uh, am always fond of... uh, remembering the Edges quote that he'd like to thank the man who invented the wide-angle lens because it made the 5,000 kids who were there look like a, an arena full. Right. I think there were there was like helicopter coverage of that concert. They, they had hired a, and, a bird to go up. Yep. Uh, that bonfires on the rocks. Uh, Michael Hutchins of NXS, uh, several years later when his band performed at Red Rocks, they showed up. And said, where are the bonfires? They thought, it, <laughs> they thought that stuff came with the place because they had seen the U2 video so many oh, times. I see. Uh, so many artists have performed at Red Rocks over the years. Really some of the biggest names in popular music. Bruce Springsteen, John Denver, The Grateful Dead, Fish, Widespread Panic, Radiohead, Bob Dylan, The Lumineers. Let's get contemporary. Dolly Parton just recently, Willie Nelson. How is it, G. Brown, that the Rolling Stones have never performed at Red Rocks? I've just never synced up with um, their touring schedules. They toured every three years starting uh, about 1966, then 69, then 72, and they'd kind of already outgrown a 
seat capacity venue yeah. at the time. The Who never played there either. Roger Daltrey performed as a solo artist, but uh, the two other uh, benchmark acts of the British invasion uh, did not perform at Red Rocks. Remarkable. These days, there's a concert at Red Rocks nearly every night in the summer. It, it doesn't necessarily feel exclusive anymore. Do you think that Red Rocks has lost any of its, oh, I don't know, its luster? I wouldn't state it quite so uh, dramatically in that I have to celebrate the more generous use of the facility. That's what it's about. It's a a mountain park first and foremost and a concert venue as well. And anyone who can see a show there or utilize that stage, uh, I'm all for it. But to your point, I do miss the days when it was a career benchmark, like playing Madison Square Garden, something that Mm. acts had to work to attain. Uh, And yet whenever I interview musicians, um, if it's on the occasion of their first performance at Red Rocks, it's still a pretty special thing. It is special. You cannot change that. Thanks for being with us. Always good seeing you, Ryan. Thanks for the support. We were above. You were standing underneath us. We were not yet G. Brown directs the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, and we spoke last August about his book, Red Rocks, The Concert Years. The amphitheater is 75 years old. This is Colorado Matters.